Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? You know, I'm doing pretty well. It's been a busy year so far. It's actually shocking how much time has seemed to resume its speed of breakneck. True. After 2020, I can't believe that we are already pretty well into spring here in Washington state and summer feels like it's just around the corner. Life is very busy and I expect it's going to continue to be that way, but I enjoy the challenges that brings. What's going on with you? Well, the last time we talked, I think that I had mentioned that my mom was in hospice. She has since passed away. I'm sure as most of our listeners have heard, we've taken a little break to um, kind of go through that process. Um, Everybody's doing pretty good. We're dealing with it the best way that any of us can. She's not in pain anymore. So that's a blessing. So yeah, yeah, I'm doing good, but super happy to be back and talking about some really fun topics. Yes, we have a lot lined up to talk about today because this is the promised follow up to our what's in your pantry, where we are talking about the green empires of ultimately what is Pillsbury and General Mills and some of their subsidiaries. This is something that I just was fascinated by when I was looking up Pillsbury soft to silk cake flour. I was confused as to why it was marked as Pillsbury, where older advertising was saying it was Betty Crocker. And so I begged you basically to to go down this rabbit hole with me just to look into these companies. They're companies that are going to be obviously very familiar. You open up your pantry door and you got your gold medal flour or your Pillsbury cake mixes, but these companies actually have a much broader impact on our North American cuisine, especially in the United States. And I just wanted to bring that up and out into the open. Sometimes you never know what people don't know. And I I just found this one particularly fascinating. So at this point, you and I probably have noticed that we talk a lot about foods that originated in the mid to late 19th century. And I believe this kind of maybe came up first when we talked about Lyle's Golden Syrup and our pies episode. And I know we talked about it on our yet-to-be-aired Halloween candy episode. Stay tuned for that one. It's really good. But today's episode is really about these two companies who wrote a zeitgeist of a very influential moment in American history. And they ultimately, through that, made a pretty substantial impact on North American household gastronomy. To set the stage, I'm going to offer a little backstory on the history of wheat growing in the United States. And I'm full of rabbit holes and little trails today, so bear with me, but we'll get there. We will eventually arrive at a conclusion. This episode will not go on forever, I promise. It was introduced to the Western Hemisphere in the 15th century, but it wasn't really an actively grown crop until the colonial period, which is like early 17th century through most of U.S. statehood. Wheat growing is laborious. Certainly early wheat farming involved broadcasting grain, reaping with sickles, threshing with flails. 
The resulting bran was then brought to grist mills where it was ground finely between two stones and this was commonly powered by water. The first American wheats were planted north and west of Washington, D.C., and like Manifest Destiny, they traveled west. The Wheat Belt is a 1,500-mile-long stretch of basically plains and prairie lands running north to south from central Alberta in the north to central Texas. The 1860s in the U.S. saw the abolition of slavery, the secession of several southern states specifically leading to the American Civil War, and the development of culture-shifting technologies like telegraphs, dynamite, antiseptic, the first periodic table, and the first transcontinental railroad in 1869. That's a lot of stuff that happens in the span of 10 years. Yeah. The Civil War itself ended in 1865, and it was that same year that C.A. Pillsbury and Company was founded in Minneapolis, Minnesota by Charles Allen Pillsbury and his uncle. So at this point, Charles had lived and worked for a time in Montreal, Canada, and he, that's where he saw the commercial interest of processing grains was pretty good money to have. His uncle had settled near Minneapolis in 1855, and this is ultimately where Charles Pillsbury settled in to start his own milling business. Now, when Charles moved to Minneapolis, there were maybe only four or five mills using water power from the waterfalls at the St. Anthony Falls using large burr stones to process grain. This was all tried and true milling methods, but it was really slow work. And so there was a bit of a race on to figure out how to use newer milling technology from Western Europe to mill faster and to produce finer flour, known pretty specifically as new process flour. Pillsbury marketed his flour as Pillsbury's best and claimed that it was the finest flour in the world. So the efficacy of this milling technology also caused a shift in wheat farming. Here's another little quick wheat aside. There are five types of wheat commonly grown in the U.S. We have hard red winter wheat, which comprises 40% of production and is usually preferred for like all-purpose flour. Hard red spring wheat, which comprises 20% of production, but it's used preferably for high-quality flour. This is the Pillsbury type of flour or cake flour. There's soft red winter wheat, which comprises 20% production and is preferred for cakes, cookies, and crackers. There's white wheat, which comprises an average of 12.5% of production, and that's preferred for soup noodles, crackers, cereals, and white crusted breads. And finally, there's durum wheat, and that's pretty much what we use for pasta. So hard red winter wheat is primarily grown in Minnesota, North and South Dakota, and Montana, and it's much easier to process than the softer winter wheat primarily grown in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Nebraska, and Colorado. There was a shift with the technology that Charles Pillsbury brought into his milling operations because it was easier for the machines that he implemented. He had the second steel roller mill in the U.S. It was easier to work with that hard brand from the hard wheat. So more of that was planted over time. There's a shift between 1820-1880 about the types of wheat that are grown in the U.S., and that has largely been attributed to the technologies developed by Pillsbury and his competitor. So Charles Pillsbury eventually brought his father and brother into his flower business. And the company's overall business acumen helped Minneapolis become one of the largest markets for grain in the world. Really, his company history is pretty impressive. Every time that the Pillsbury company acquired a new mill, it was rebuilt and outfitted with new equipment. The Pillsbury company was instrumental in forming the Millers Association, through which agricultural agents inspected and bought grain. 
It developed and implemented a system of grain elevators for storage and shipment, and it contributed heavily into further railroad development, allowing its products to be more easily shipped coast to coast, and then ultimately shipped across the world. The Pillsbury A-Mill was built in 1881, and it was perhaps the pinnacle of the company's milling history. The largest flour mill in the world for 40 years, it had the capacity of 5,000 barrels of flour a day at a time when 500 barrel production was considered large. Production at Mill A steadily increased to 24,500 barrels per day, and Pillsbury became a global flour brand. Production at Mill A ceased in 2003, so that's a pretty decent amount of time. An architectural note of interest on this one, Mill A never exploded or caught fire, so the building contains its original wood frame from 1881. It joined the National Register of Historic Places in 1966 and now houses Live Work Lofts. The next time I visit my sister Kate, hi Kate, in Minneapolis, I'm definitely going to drop by and check out its historic facade. I'm really fascinated. So I think it's important that you note that it didn't explode. I don't know if people understand yeah. that during this time, so many of those mills exploded because the flour dust particles are so flammable. I Truthfully, I never thought or even knew about dust explosions until we embarked on As We Eat. It was not something that occurred to me that happened. You don't think of things like flour or sugar necessarily being flammable, but dust is, and it, it can cause its own combustion just by being too much of it in, in one place without adequate air. Yeah, no, the fact that this Mill A, for as big as it was and as busy as it was, that it never had that kind of accident history is actually really remarkable. So as I said before, Pillsbury's company became the second flour company in the U.S. to use steel rolling mills to produce flour. They were in direct competition literally across the falls <laughs> with Washburn Crosby Company, which is ultimately a precursor to the general mills that we know. So a funny little story about all this, actually. A precursor to the Washburn Crosby Company was the Minneapolis Mill Company, chartered by the Minnesota Territorial Legislation in 1856. Minnesota wasn't actually a U.S. state until May 11th, 1858. And despite having water power rights at St. Anthony Falls in Minneapolis, the company just never really did any well, so many of the original investors started to sell off their interests. Enter businessman and Union Army Major General Codwallader Colden Washburn. I love that name. Talk about hopelessly old-fashioned names. I can't imagine anyone like voluntarily going for Cadwallader anymore. Nope. But yeah, here's our Mr. Washburn. And he bought into the, the Minneapolis Mill Company and from there became president and started building a variety of mills, including cotton, wool, sawmills, grist flour mills. I find the humor in the fact that he was a general and ultimately his company was the precursor to General Mills. I know it's not the same thing. <laughs> now, when I think of General Mills, I want to give the little salute. Yeah, that, this is how I entertain myself. In 1866, Mr. Washburn, General Washburn, built his own very large Washburn B mill at St. Anthony Falls followed by an even larger Washburn A mill in 1874. The General Mills website has this very breathy commentary about the founder's original vision at the falls. Quote, Washburn had visited the falls by steamboat before the war. 
and by the war there being the civil war. He gasped when he saw it. He realized this was a source of power. If you wanted to power industry in those days, you did it with water. Washburn's B mill eventually rose six stories above the frontier. It was not only the largest mill west of the Mississippi, but west of Buffalo, New York, end quote, except for my little side there. <laughs> in 1877, John Crosby, also a mill owner, bought into the Washburn B mill and the two formed the Washburn Crosby Company. In 1880, Washburn Crosby won gold, silver, and bronze medals for its flowers at the Miller's International Exhibition, and the success launched the gold medal flower brand. In 1929, it created another major zeitgeist. Lay, can you enlighten me? I can. As you mentioned, the grain industry had this very direct impact on industry in innovation in cultures and communities across the states. But it also had this very indirect impact, and it came in the form of a culinary confidant, a woman that always had sound advice for baking and cooking and really most domestic issues. So to just build a little background to understand this campaign, I want to quickly review the dates that Kim's laid out a little bit and the players in the Minneapolis milling scene. So as she mentioned, in 1869, Pillsbury was founded by Charles Pillsbury. 1874, the Washburn A. Mill opened its doors and its founder was our general Cadwallader C. Washburn. Sir, 1877, Cadwallader and John Crosby formed the Washburn Crosby Company. And then in 1880, it was the first Miller's International Exhibition where they actually took gold, silver and bronze medal. And they'd capitalize on that win by branding their flower, the gold medal flower. And you have to remember gold medal flower because it plays a significant role in this food campaign. 1828. Washburn Crosby merged with 28 other mills. So to Kim's point, the whole Mississippi River was lined with mills. And the fact that the Pillsbury A mill did not explode or wasn't damaged by other explosions is really impressive. In so many of our conversations, we've talked about food campaigns. We've talked about Coca-Cola's happiness campaign. We've talked about the American Egg Board's The Incredible Edible Egg campaign. We talked about Maxwell House's Haggadah campaign. But I think that this campaign that was put together by Washburn Crosby is hands down the most successful food brand campaign that has ever been rolled out in the United States and arguably maybe even the world. And if you haven't guessed the name of this campaign yet, it's Betty Crocker. Betty! Spoiler alert, Betty Crocker has never, ever been a real person. She has always been a brand campaign. Flour milling reached its peak in the early 20th century. And as you can imagine, with as many as 30 milling companies in one area, you need to differentiate yourself from the competition. It was paramount. In 1921, Betty was born to the proud parents of the Washburn Crosby Company of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it actually all started when Washburn Crosby Company placed an ad on the back of the Saturday Evening Post for their gold medal flower. The ad was actually a puzzle that was all jumbled up on the back of this page. And if you put the puzzle together properly 
and you submitted it to the company, you would win a little pin cushion that was in the shape of a gold metal flower bag. They were inundated by 30,000 completed puzzles. Wow. Yeah. They had no idea that this ad campaign would be so successful. But what caught their attention even more than that was the submissions of questions. Hundreds of letters came in asking for advice like, how long should I need my bread? What's a good recipe for why does my cake fall? At the time, Washburn Crosby required that any communication that was sent out to consumers had to be signed by hand. And also at this time, all of the questions that the consumers brought to the company were managed by an in-house advertising department, which happened to be all male. What they would do is they would go to the female staff of the company's home service department to get the answers and then pass along the answers to the consumers. But the manager of this advertising department, Samuel Gale, didn't feel comfortable signing his name to these letters that were going back to these women. He felt that they wouldn't trust the advice of a man who couldn't possibly know his way around the kitchen. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) So this sparked an idea for him. And he, along with his supervisor, James Quint, convinced the directors of the company that they needed another member of the home service staff. But they wouldn't have to outlay any money to fund this position. It was going to be completely fictitious. So the first order of business for this fictitious member of staff was to name her. At that time, there was a much-loved director who had just retired from the company, William G. Crocker. So Betty got her last name from him. And Betty just sounded like this sweet, cheerful, wholesome girl. It was simple. It was easy to remember. It joined the likes of Dolly Madison, Aunt Jemima, Mm -hmm. Aunt Sammy, who I had never heard of, but she was Uncle Sam's wife. Oh. Aunt Sammy. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then the next step to bring this person to life and add credibility and authenticity was she needed a signature because there was the rule that everything had to be signed. So they ran this contest among the female employees, and the winner was a secretary named Florence Lindbergh. And her winning script still is used on the Betty Crocker products. (laughs) Aw. But almost 100 years later... The thing that's also really remarkable when you think about brand trademarks, that signature, I can call to mind instantly. It's not something you would experience like day to day, but because Betty Crocker has been such a seminal part of our gastronomy that she's ubiquitous. You still have that sense that even though you know that there's not a real Betty Crocker, that there's still this persona to her. You still want to yeah. call it call Betty she and you feel like you're relating to this sort of anonymous female figure that's well known to you yeah even though you've never met her exactly and it got to the point where poor Florence because she had to sign all of these letters she actually had to train numerous female employees how to sign Betty's name that's cool yeah Yeah. And then during this time, there were so many things that were happening within the kitchen culture. You had the introduction of refrigerators and washing machines, which were Mm -hmm. supposed to reduce labor, but actually created more work. 
And according to historian Susan Strasser, this additional work tended to isolate women in the home. And I guess that we can relate it to computers, right? Computers mm-hmm. were supposed to make our lives so much easier, but <laughs> right. no, they but just really? added work. Yeah, exactly. They just added work. But you also had women that were going to college and into the workplace. So they were missing the apprenticeship of the stove that was taught by mothers and grandmothers. So in creating Betty Crocker, Washburn Crosby was able to capitalize on these issues of isolation, busier lifestyles, and a generation of women that were less educated, note the air quotes, in the (laughs) domestic arts than their grandmothers and their mothers were. Mm -hmm. And consumers fell in love with her. And to your point that we really have this affinity to Betty, she actually even got marriage proposals from men. (laughs) That's how real that this woman was to people. And for a long time, I don't think people understood that she really wasn't a real person. It's the funny thing about the cult of personality, right? Because I, I know that there was a point in my life where I thought Betty Crocker was a real person. Just as much as I thought Emily Post was or Dear Abby, because at a certain point, when do you explain to a child this thing isn't real? It's like ruining Christmas when you tell yeah. your child that Santa Claus doesn't exist. What? I hope what we didn't you, ruin anybody. What, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Santa Claus isn't oh, no. real. What are you talking about? <laughs> So the consumers fell in love with her. She was practical. She was gracious. She was prompt and she was discreet. So she became this trusted friend, someone who could be relied on to keep these culinary confessions and deficiencies (laughs) private. You didn't have your mother-in-law criticizing you and you didn't feel less than your more accomplished housewife friends. Right. Like it reminds me of the Maxwell House advertising, I'll never tell, it's Maxwell Drip. This notion of secrecy in the kitchen. There is something about this sort of mystical division between what happens in the kitchen and what comes into the dining room. And Betty was, is the, not the gatekeeper, but she does help ease that transition. Absolutely. And of course, this all helped to sell, which was the point of this, gold medal flower. But She had some more significant impacts, I believe, than just being able to sell a bag of flour. The Betty Crocker Test Kitchen was developed from the Home Services Department, and it opened up a lot more opportunities to women in the home economics career. And I I really want to be clear, these women were scientists. Mm -hmm. This isn't your home at class, which I am not debasing in any way. I think it needs to come back into our educational system. But these women (laughs) were, yeah, they were scientists and they were professionals. So you had this new career that these women could go into. And they did. They developed recipes. Betty Crocker championed the standardization of baking pans so that recipe results were consistent. Think about how important it is. You have a codified recipe now, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So all of the things are written down. The method is written down Mm -hmm. for you. But you put this recipe into a nine inch pan rather than an eight inch pan. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to feel like you have failed. Yeah. So we have gotten standardized baking pans from Betty Crocker. She helped guide World War II homemakers through Mm. rationing of commodities, but more importantly, in serving healthy meals and keeping morales up. Yeah. And 
There were so many things that the company put out under Betty's name to help women. One of the many wartime booklets that she published was called Your Share, How to Prepare Appetizing Healthful Meals with Foods Available Today. It included 52 menus. 226 recipes that had been tested in the test kitchen, and 369 tips for wartime food buying, preparation, meal planning. And there were recipes that were named Victory Icing, Mm. Yankee Doodle Macaroni, Victory Pancakes. There were suggestions for what kind of foods to serve at a wedding during the war. Mm -hmm. So you had this booklet that was really helping to prop you up and help you. The thing that I loved the most about this was that it was really focused on healthy foods, Mm -hmm. that it was really important for you to provide your family with foods that would sustain their energy, that would make them feel good, both physically and mentally. And then she also developed the Betty's Home Legion program. And what that did was it celebrated homemaking as a profession. Yes. 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 And as it should be. (laughs) Exactly. And it was later transformed into Designs for Happiness, which updated the original purpose by addressing post-war issues that homemakers were suffering, like women that were keeping their jobs after their GI husbands came home. And mental issues, even addressing and talking about mental issues that many women were experiencing during this very confusing time for women. Yeah. At one point, over 40% of America's female population was employed during the war. Mm -hmm. So they had gone out, they had become employed, they had not only that, they were employed, and they were running their households. So after the war, there were a lot of things that they had to manage and figure out once their husbands came home, once their sons came home, or didn't. Yeah, it it was a monumental, massive cultural change. And And, and that's actually another area that we do also end up talking quite a bit about is, is World War II and food. We also saw campaigns around that time come out with thinking of our casseroles episode. We were talking about the cream of soups and right. all the, the work that went into developing those campaigns to promote Campbell's and other products, but by creating these helpful tools to figure out how to cook recipes that at least mimicked older recipes you didn't learn, as you said, like you didn't learn in the kitchen. Betty informed me a great deal as a young cook. My parents received a Betty Crocker cookbook, I think, when they moved to the United States. I think it must have been a housewarming gift because it's a very much an American cookbook. But it's my go-to reference point still. You can easily learn how to cook just following the directions. They've Without it getting too specific or too generic, they seem to be just right for any skill level. And you can put together a really decent meal. That's exactly right. In 1945, Betty was hailed as America's first lady of food in Fortune magazine. At the time, she was the second most popular woman trailing behind Eleanor Roosevelt. (laughs) Wow, that's power. That's impressive. It, It is. And like you said, she still informs a mm-hmm. hundred years later, she still informs new cooks, old cooks. I still use oh, her yeah. cookbooks. Absolutely. Not that I'm old, but no, never. <laughs> no, we're, we're but spring chickens. Yes. I have a few recipes in my repertoire. Oh my gosh. I have this one Betty Crocker recipe 
it is a never fail appetizer. Like it's my go-to thing and it's meatballs in a sweet, spicy sauce It is the easiest thing in the world to put together. That's the hallmark of Betty Crocker's It's these Mm -hmm. simple recipes with a massive impact. Yeah. Betty has quickly become a hero for me. Yeah. And all of this from a persona built to sell more bags of flour. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's she's amazing. Betty, we salute you are the real general here, Betty. We salute you. We salute you. Oh, I wish you were around to enjoy our accolades. (laughs) All of you, all hundreds of thousands of people that have helped embody you. Yeah, we salute you. Are we ready to go back to the mills? Okay. So in 1928, Washburn Crosby, President James Ford Bell, foresaw that the mills industry was receding and merged his mills with three other mills to form General Mills. General Mills debuted on the New York Stock Exchange on November 30th, 1928 at $65 per share. And that is equivalent to about $1,000 in 2021 money. Wow. And according to General Mills and everything I've seen points to this being true, it is one of only a handful of companies in the United States to pay dividends on common stock option without interruption. So that's almost 100 years worth of consistently paying dividends if you were an owner. This was a really good investment. But what about Pillsbury? We've stopped talking about Pillsbury. The original Pillsbury Company and its five mills were purchased by a British company in 1889, but reacquired by the Pillsbury family in 1923. They incorporated it back to the Pillsbury Flour Mills Company in 1935. And from here, it grew in absolute leaps and bounds, far outstripped its air quote, humble mill origins. Never outdone by Washburn Crosby or General Mills, Over the ensuing decades, Pillsbury amassed impressive corporate holdings, including Burger King, Steak and Ale, Bennigan's, Godfather's Pizza, Haagen-Dazs, Quick Walk, and popular grocery food brands like Green Giant. Wow, I had no idea. And General Mills had a similar trajectory itself. In 2001, it finally acquired and merged with Pillsbury, inherited all of the holdings except for Burger King. Here's another quote from the General Mills History website about this merger. Quote, from its milling roots, General Mills had leveraged its grain expertise into breakfast cereals, cake mixes, and grain-based snacks. Pillsbury had evolved to develop unmatched expertise in refrigerated dough products. It also had strong bakeries and food service business and a growing international portfolio. End quote. The new General Mills is probably a part of our lives way more than we really know. I alluded last time to the idea of like, open up your pantry cupboard and I bet you're going to you know, be seeing a whole lot of stuff that is attributed to General Mills. But it's also when you go out to eat as well. The company owns or has a major share of the following brands. Gold Metal Flour, which we've talked about. Betty Crocker, which we've talked about, who has her own line of ready-to-make cake mixes and frostings and all kinds of decorations. Yo Play, Colombo, Totino's, Haagen-Dazs, Annie's Homegrown, which I, I didn't realize until I, I saw the list. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. They actually have a third of the share of healthy food brands. So that's it, actually wow. been a huge initiative of General Mills. Old El Paso, Cheerios, Tricks, Cocoa Puffs, Lucky Charms, 
the monster cereals that I so fondly remember from the 80s. Those are still available, although I think sometimes they've got a limited time in the store. But wait, there's more. In 1970, General Mills, now this is pre-acquisition, General Mills acquired a five-restaurant chain, a little thing called Red Lobster, and grew that into a national brand. And then in 1982, it founded another little restaurant chain. You might have heard of it, I don't know, called Olive Garden. And then these assets, along with a couple of others, were spun off as Darden restaurants. So they are part of the empire, but not directly correlated to General Mills. Wow. Yeah. And then General Mills itself, they're involved in a lot of other non-food things, toys, aeronautical research. It's pretty fascinating what they've been able to do. I've been asking myself, like, Kim, what is your thesis here? Why are we talking about this? And to me, this is just a nonpartisan example of the American dream. Here's an example of people who took opportunities and they made opportunities happen not only for themselves, but actually ultimately for their employees. Pillsbury does incredible things for its employees. I think if I remember right, they've never had a union because they've never needed to have a union. Wow. We have a certain national cynicism about large companies. And the reality is that Pillsbury and Washburn Crosby slash General Mills have actually Yes, in pursuit of growth and pursuit of economic success, but they've added to the railroad network. They've innovated in their factories to an extent that workers are safe and things are moving efficiently and and that people don't have to worry about dust explosions or being crushed by falling grain. Betty taught so many of us how to cook, frankly, Betty Crocker, and you can't just dismiss that. No. And even beyond learning how to cook, I think she supported women through a lot of times where they weren't necessarily receiving the support that that they needed. They could reach out to her. She was a safe person to ask your questions. It it is interesting to look at the impacts, both directly and indirectly, of what these companies have done. And to your point that you talked about, we've talked about the explosions a little bit. In 1878, the Washburn A-Mill exploded, and it claimed 18 lives. It leveled the mill and most of the waterfront businesses that were there. But Washburn hired an Australian engineer who developed some of these protocols for safeties that so you wouldn't have those again. And of course, part of that is a business decision, but the other part is a human decision. So yeah, these mills built Minneapolis from what could have been a small, smaller town into the metropolis that it is and major part of our American culinary. So thank you for joining me on this journey onto the Great (laughs) Empires. When I use flour now in my recipes... Between talking about the cake flour and then learning about milling and then talking about these powerhouses, these captains of industry. Or generals. Or generals. (laughs) You know, it's gotten me thinking about where my food comes from and what kind of journey it must have had to get to me, both in its literal present sense, but also just how it got to me as just a part of my diet, that part of the American diet, part of a North American diet, and it it's feel connected to all kinds of people all over the world. So to every Pillsbury and General Mills person, whoever was and ever will be, I salute you. Thanks for bringing me that sweet, sweet gold medal flower. With that, 
I think I'm going to go make some snickerdoodle cookies from the Gold Medal Jubilee Select Recipes, 1880 through 1955. Very, very nice. I think I'm going to call my mom and ask her to read me because she still has the Betty Crocker cookbook. I love that chocolate chip cookie recipe. And so I'm going to commune with Betty and make some chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, that's going to be tasty. But before we dip our hands into the cookie jar, what can our listeners expect for next week? So we want to hear from you. We want to hear a little bit about what kind of kitchen technologies you are interested in. And we're talking about things like blenders and food processors. Take a look around your kitchen. And what is it that you see that you use on a regular basis that you think you might want to hear a little bit more about? We are going to bring you some really fascinating information, as you have come to expect from us. Uh, A little banter, a little bit of weird fun facts, (laughs) maybe. We'll see. Some rabbit holes. Some rabbit hole. Definitely always the rabbit holes and the digressions. Those are the spice of life. We'll see you next time. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at As We Eat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.